Now, friends, we come to the 19th chapter, and we have come to the burden of Egypt. This is the sixth burden, and as we've seen before, this is the judgment. And we have here about 11 judgments upon surrounding nations. That is, they were surrounding the nation Israel. And certainly, Egypt is one that we would expect to find in this list. And this is, without doubt, one of the greatest passages that illustrates to me the accuracy of the Word of God. And I personally think one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the Word of God is fulfilled prophecy. Now, no nation figures so prominently on the pages of Scripture than the nation Egypt in its relationship to Israel. This nation has a longer history than any nation that's mentioned in Scripture, and that includes Israel. In fact, it was down in the land of Egypt that the nation Israel was born. That is, that's where they became a nation. They went down 70 souls of the family of old Jacob. They came up four hundred years later with several million. And apparently, I say several million, at least a million and a half. Now, the nation Egypt at that time was an old nation. It was one of the most ancient of the great nations of the past. And the thing that is remarkable about it, it has had a continuous history right down to the present day, and it's in existence today, and it plays a prominent part in world events. And it has a glorious future that's predicted in the passage of Scripture that we are considering today. This chapter here, I think, contains all elements which enter into the history of the nation. We have here its past, its present, and its future. And we find Egypt coming on the page of Scripture when Abraham ran away to Egypt and there got into difficulties. Later, Joseph was sold into Egypt, and during a famine that brought Jacob and his twelve sons down to Egypt and their families, seventy souls in all. Israel became a great nation in the slavery of the brickyards of Egypt. And then later on, when they returned to the land, a couple of their kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, both made an alliance with Egypt and found her a very unreliable ally. And during the intertestament period between Malachi and Matthew, Israel suffered grievously at the hand of Egypt. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, he was taken down into Egypt. And the gospel in the early days made many converts in Egypt during those first three centuries of the Christian era. And out of that section, there came three of the great saints of the church, Athanasius, Origen, and Augustine, and several others, but these three always seem to me to be outstanding. Egypt is the thorn, I think, in the side of the new nation of Israel. So I've divided this chapter, the first 15 verses, fulfill prophecy. 
And then the remainder of the chapter, unfulfilled prophecy, that which is future. Now, I want to touch on some of these great things that we have here, because there are great things that we have in this particular chapter. And first of all, will you note verse 1. Verse 1, now, chapter 19 of Isaiah, the burden of Egypt, that is, the judgment of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Now, the chief target of God's condemnation and charge against Egypt was idolatry. We'll pick this up again when we get to Ezekiel, because another one of the most remarkable prophecies is in Ezekiel, where God said that every idol would disappear from Egypt. And Egypt had as many idols as Babylon did. Babylon was the fountainhead of idolatry, but Egypt certainly made its contribution. And I think that Paul's statement in Romans 1, 21 through 23, probably fits Egypt more than any other nation. Will you notice this? Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now, history bears testimony to the fact that Egypt was originally monotheistic. That is, they worshipped one God. But they gradually lapsed into the basest sort of idolatry where every creature under heaven was worshipped. The bull, the frog, the scarab, or the bug, the fish, and all sorts of birds. And when... Moses was ready to deliver Egypt. God had to carry on a warfare, which he was glad to do. I call it the battle of the gods, when Moses brought down the plagues upon Egypt. Now, each one of those plagues was directed against one of the idols of Egypt. And the Lord Jehovah struck at all forms of idolatry in Egypt, all the way from the sun in the heavens to the Nile River, and to the frogs and the lice that were in the land. Now he comes down again in a cloud like a chariot to destroy the idols of Egypt. And it's interesting to know that idolatry has long since disappeared from that land, though the people dwell in the ignorance and superstition of the Muslim religion. And I've been over there twice, and I tell you, there's no darkness like the darkness in the land of Egypt, and this has been fulfilled literally. Verse 2, I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. They shall fight everyone against his brother, everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Now, there were several pharaohs arose about the time of Isaiah 
They could no longer control this great kingdom, and the army no longer obeyed them. People no longer respected them. And this caused the setting up of weak city-states that were self-governing for a period of time. That's the reason you have up the river Nile, Thebes, and the other great Karnak, the other great cities that were in that section. And then that was a breakup again, Memphis. We know it in the Scriptures, Noph, and so on. Now, verse 3, "...and the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. I will destroy the counsel thereof. They shall seek to the idols, to the charmers, and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards." Now, this proud nation that advanced civilization so far. And they're probably not a nation under the sun today that does not owe a great deal to the civilization of Egypt. Now, these people turn to idols, and they finally, in desperation, resorted to spiritism. And you find at the time of Moses, for instance, that the magicians were called in. And they actually could duplicate some of the miracles of Moses. There came a time when they couldn't duplicate and they fled, but at first they did it, which reveals the fact that they were not fakers. They actually had satanic power. Now, verse 3, the spirit of Egypt shall fail, you see. And then in verse 4, and the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, this cruel Lord is specifically one that is mentioned in history as Psalmitychus, who rose about the ninth century B.C., but also the Ottoman Turk that came in. And then there came in the Hyksos kings out from the desert. They were nomads, Bedouin princes. And for a time they ruled in Egypt, and that was actually before this period, before Isaiah, because it was when Joseph went down. The Hyksos kings were then in power. So Egypt has had that experience. This all has been literally fulfilled. Verse 5, "...and the waters shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up." Now, here are specific prophecies that are quite remarkable. Now, the sea here refers to the river Nile because it was the main artery of the nation and it was a large body of water. And because of that, why it's spoken of here is the sea. Now, the rivers here are the canals that were built especially down around the mouth of the river. And that mouth had to be kept open. That delta area had to be kept open in that day because so much of soil was coming down, and they were able to keep it open and had to keep it open. It's true of the Mississippi Delta today. Now, verse 6, "...they shall turn the rivers far away," that is, the canals and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up, the reeds and flags shall wither." Now, this is something that is quite interesting that even today, those brooks, that is, those outlets to the sea there at the delta, are filled up. And all vegetation, that was a wonderful place like the Garden of Eden. And it's not that today by any means. And those that have been to the land of Egypt are rather amazed to notice 
how that irrigation has done such wonders, and that you find nothing growing along the banks of the River Nile. That is to speak of, you don't have great forests and a great deal of foliage that you have around all other rivers. Now listen what God said specifically. The paper reeds by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. Now the paper reeds are the papyrus. Now in that day it was a great industry. In fact, Egypt became a wealthy nation because papyrus was the writing material of man. After the clay tablets, it was papyrus. And the Phoenicians had scattered this all over the world, that is, the Mediterranean world or the civilized world, and papyrus was raised along the Nile River. Well, you don't find it there today. It's disappeared. Now, if you go to the museum there, out in front in the pool they've got there, the fountain, you'll find papyrus. And then some of the wealthy homes, especially the British, quite a colony of British that live in Cairo today, And you find in many of their homes, they raise the papyrus. But today it's sort of a luxury plant and no longer the common plant that grew in that day. God said it would cease. Now, friends, you can make of that anything you want to. It ceased, though. And you can explain it your way. But God says it's going to cease. I believe that he had a little something to do with it. Verse 8. The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brook shall lament, and they that spread nets upon the water shall languish. Now, another great industry in Egypt was fish. Remember the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they missed the fish when they got out on the desert. Also the leeks, onions, and garlic. They wanted the fish. And God gave them flesh to eat, you'll recall, out there the quail. And very frankly, they didn't care too much for quail on toast. They much preferred the fish in Egypt. Well, now, that's disappeared. Now, I particularly watch for this. I don't think I saw over two or three people fishing on the river Nile. Oh, there's fish there, but it's no longer an industry. And the fact of the matter is, if you go down to Florida, you see them by the hundreds along the canals fishing there. You don't see them in Egypt fishing like that. Now, God said it would disappear. It's disappeared. Now, moreover, they that work in fine flax and they that weave networks shall be confounded. That'll disappear. Now, Egypt raised flax, and they had the finest linen. In fact, it's not even excelled or surpassed by the linen in Ireland today. I think that to the pound that they get about 180,000 feet of strands. But in Egypt, they got 300,000. That is almost twice the amount. It was very much like silk. And it is said that a fisherman could take a net made of that fine twine, byssus linen, and pull it through the ring that was on his hand. And it was this linen that went into the building of the tabernacle down in the wilderness by the nation of Israel. They had brought out that fine twine by suspended. Now, that industry has totally disappeared. Now, the entire fishing industry would disappear. God says in verse 10, "...they shall be broken in their purposes thereof, 
all that makes sluices and ponds for fish. Now, Egypt's well, as Dr. Jennings has put it, as already said, practically consists in a river because of its volume here. It's called a sea. Now, all that's disappeared. Not only that, the princess of Zoan, and Zoan is Tunis, the council of the wise council of Pharaohs, and he says those princes are fools. Now, what has happened? The royal line of the Pharaohs, they intermarried so much. Actually, brother Mary's sister, and it produced an offspring of morons. And that was the line that went down in Egypt. And God says the princes of Tunis are become fools. And the princes of Noph or Memphis, they're deceived. And they've also seduced Egypt. And you know the sordid story of Cleopatra, however, she was Greek and not really an Egyptian at all. But they came to power, you see, later on. Now he says, verse 15, "...neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail branch or rush may do." There would be now, notice what he says, the failure of false religion, the failure of material resources, and the failure of mental and spiritual power. It would all go. Now, that's disappeared, and we'll find in another prophecy later on that Egypt would become a base kingdom. All you have to do is to go to Cairo to have that confirmed. Now, we have in verse 16 the future, in that day. Now, we've already seen... This is a technical term used by Isaiah, and it looks to the future. It looks to the day of the Lord. In that day shall Egypt be like unto women. It shall be afraid. That will be their condition when they go into the great tribulation period. Verse 17, the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Somebody's going to try to say that's being fulfilled today, but I don't think that you can quite say that you do not have the qualifications of fulfillment in what we see today. Everyone that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts. When will that take place? Verse 19, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof, and it shall be a sign. Now, an altar to the Lord has been interpreted by some of the cults as the pyramid. Well, a pyramid is neither an altar, it's not a pillar, it's a monstrous mausoleum for the burying of a king and his queen, and that's all in the world it ever was. What would be a sign? What would be an ensign? What would be that? Well, it's nothing in the world but the cross of Christ, my friend. And we have here in verse 22, "...and the Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite and heal it." And they shall return even to the Lord. He shall be entreated of them. Egypt has a glorious future. And this nation will enter and enjoy the kingdom with Israel. That doesn't look like the present hour, does it not? Only God could do this. Verse 24, "...in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, and Assyria is to be restored." My, this is a great passage of Scripture here. Now we come to chapter 20, which is just a continuation of the burden of Egypt. And the one great thought here is that in three years, this land here would be invaded. Verse 1, "...in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, 
when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. Now, Tartan was a general in the Assyrian army, mentioned in 2 Kings 18.17. Ashdod was a city in Samaria and the ten northern tribes. Now, Sargon succeeded Shalmaneser. You have that in 2 Kings 17.3. Now, for years, secular history could not find Sargon. And there were historians. You go back a hundred years ago and they'll tell you, that Sargon never lived. They didn't find him, but they found him now. Archaeologists found the stones and the clay tablets on which his story is written. This is remarkable, by the way. But the very interesting thing, we're told here that all of this will take place in three years. And Isaiah was to walk through Israel to let them know what would happen to Egypt. And as he walked, we are told, naked and barefooted. And he'd be for a sign and um, wonder for the people that though a glorious future is for Egypt, yet they were going to be judged. And we're told that this would take place in three years. What a remarkable statement concerning this in this particular passage of Scripture. May I say this is a remarkable little chapter that we have here. And we're told that Assyria would be the one that would do it. And Assyria did take Egypt, the first nation that did. And then later on, Babylon did. Now, friends, we come to the 21st chapter. We are looking at what is called the burdens of these nations, but it's the judgment upon certain nations. There are 11, actually, of these burdens. We We'll look in chapter 21 at three of them, 7, 8, and 9. We have the three burdens. The first one is concerning Babylon, called here the desert of the sea. The second one is Edom, called Juma here, and Arabia. And these three burdens in this chapter, they are set forth before us in a very expressive manner of symbols, and they are, I think, made very clear to us. I recognize that in the day that they were given, they were as clear as the noonday sun to people in Isaiah's day, just as, well, when the stars and stripes are mentioned today, we, I hope most of us, know exactly what is referred to. We call it old glory, or the American flag. Now, the insignia in this chapter may not be as clear to us, but I think that it can be clear to us if we'll spend a little time in studying, although the expositors have disagreed here, but I think most of them, there is a certain amount of agreement on this. And we can identify them, as we've said, as Babylon, Edom, and Arabia. Now, this is a remarkable section of Scripture that we are in. fact of the matter is, this is a section that to me is so remarkable because it makes very clear that so much of the Word of God is neglected today. Let me illustrate this by asking you a question. When was the last time that you ever heard a sermon or a Bible study 
on the 21st chapter of Isaiah. I have a notion that there are many of you that have never, never heard a study on the 21st of Isaiah. And by the way, I'd like to ask this. When you write your letter in, be sure and let us know if you ever did. I would appreciate knowing how many people have heard a message on the 21st of Isaiah, or the 22nd for that matter. And this is another one of the sections of Scripture that confirm me in the position that I hold, which is the premillennial, the pre-tribulation, dispensational interpretation of the Word of God. And I wasn't always brought up on that. In fact, I was not at the beginning. But this is the only interpretation that would satisfy passage like this. And this is the reason that all other systems stay clear of this passage and other passages of Scripture. Now, the remarkable thing here is there are symbols used. And that people say, well, I thought you believed in literal interpretation. I do. And when a symbol is used, it's always pictures of reality. And that's the important thing to remember. You know, some people use the word symbol and they use it to evaporate it, to make it disappear. They're like a magician. If they say it's a symbol, it's like saying hocus pocus and it's gone. You don't worry about it, but we'll worry about it. With that introduction, let's look at this. The burden of the desert of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land. Now, what do we have before us here? Well, let's look at this for a moment. The desert of the sea. That's a strange expression, is it not? It's very much like saying the dryness of the water or how dry the water is. It may not be too peculiar to us today because we have dry ice and cold heat today. And Dr. Jennings, he translates this like this, and I would not call it a translation, but rather a marvelous interpretation. Listen to this. As sweep the whirlwinds through the south, so comes it from the desert, from the land that strikes with terror. And that's good, by the way. It's a good interpretation. But this doesn't identify the nation. But somebody says, then how do you know what it is? Well, this is a case where you keep reading. And in verse 9, I read, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And so now I know that the desert of the sea is Babylon. And Babylon became a world power, and even before she did, her doom was predicted. We've already seen that. And that was the first burden in chapters 13 and 14 was against Babylon. Now, Babylon became so awe-inspiring, so frightful, and represented so much in Scripture that we have this further word concerning its doom. It was the first place of united rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. And it represents the last stronghold of rebellion against God. You'll find that in Revelation 
17 and 18. You have religious Babylon in chapter 17 and commercial Babylon in chapter 18 of Revelation. Now, this expression here, desert of the sea, now that's a paradoxical phrase. Now, actually, Babylon was geographically located on a great desert plain by the side of the Euphrates River. And it was irrigated by canals from that river. And Jeremiah gives this description of Babylon in Jeremiah 51, 13. O thou that dwellest upon many waters. Now, the desert and the sea form a weird amalgamation. Isn't that true? The same fusion of desert and sea is made by John in Revelation. For instance, over in Revelation 17, 3, he said he was caught away to the wilderness, and he saw this woman in the wilderness riding the beast. Now, this is a desert where he beheld mystery Babylon. And in 17:1 we're told, "...she sitteth upon many waters." It was in the desert that John saw the many waters. Now, these two are symbolic but they carry through the same pattern. We'll find it again when we get to Jeremiah, the fifth chapter, verse 1. Now, Babylon, with its glitter and glamour, and as the fountainhead of idolatry and false religion, was a mirage upon the desert. Isn't this tremendous? Desert of the sea. What a picture. You thought you were going to go to a place Oh, and it would be so wonderful. But what was it? It was a mirage upon the desert. You thought you were seeing a spring and an oasis, but it wasn't. You could go to Babylon filled with idols and religion, but there was no life giving water for the souls of man. And this is something that every pastor, every radio preacher, every church, and every church member ought to turn over in his mind. Is my church, or am I today a fountain of water, or am I just a mirage on the desert of life? Am I a life-giving fountain? Let's keep moving, verse 2, because that gets personal, does it not? And I'm reading now, "...a grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all the sighing thereof have I made deceits. Now, God commands the twofold nation of Media Persia to destroy and spoil the city. And that's what you have in Elam here. Elam is Persia. And this is exactly what happened. Here's a prophecy given before it took place. Now, the destruction of Babylon was such as the prophet saw it. In verse 4, my heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Now, he's moved with great feeling and emotion when he learns of the coming devastation. Now, no one today can rejoice in the judgment of God. God says his judgment is his strange work. He doesn't want to judge. He wants to save you. He doesn't want to judge you. That's up to you. What will be determined It's up to a nation. Now, in verse 5, he says, "...prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, 
anoint the shield. Now, this reads as if it were an eyewitness account of the destruction of Babylon as recorded by Daniel in the fifth chapter of Daniel. And remember, this was recorded about 200 years before it transpired. And in the midst of the banquet of Belshazzar, the Median general Gabrias that had detoured one of the canals marched his army underneath the wall of the city, and with a surprise and a shock, he took the city and slew men and women right and left. This is something God said would take place. And therefore, we read here in verse 9, And behold, here cometh a chariot of men. Now, it's the watchman up on the wall of the city, telling the people on the inside what he sees. He says, as I look out on the desert, there comes a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And these are messengers. And as they come, they give the news, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of our gods he hath broken under the ground. All my thrashing in the corn of my floor... That which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Now, this is the time of thrashing. This is the time of harvest. Judgment is the time of harvest. Our harvest is the time of judgment. We today talk about that the fields are white under harvest. Actually, our Lord gave that at the end of the age of law when judgment was coming upon these people who'd had the law for 1,500 years, minus a few years. And he says the harvest is here, and they would get out. Our business today is a sower, went forth to sow. And that's the reason we're to give out the Word of God today. That's the picture. Babylon has fallen. And I want to recommend a book right here because we're going to be coming to Babylon and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then Daniel. Kislev, the two Babylons. Now, the chances are you won't find it in your gospel bookstore. You may find it in your library, and you may find it in a secondhand bookstore. But if you can put your hand on a copy of Hislop, the two Babylons, you do it. You'll have a very valuable book. Now, verse 11. The burden of Duma. Now, who's Duma? He called to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? Now, who in the world is Duma? What do we have here? And Duma, by the way, is a symbolic word. Isaiah played upon words. We've already seen that. Use words to carry a message. And he used it to bring out a deeper meaning. Now, Duma is Edom with the E removed, you see. You take E off of Edom, and what we have here is Edom. And Duma means silence. And our word is dumb today. That's the intent here and the purpose of Isaiah. Edom is still a land of death-like silence. Seir means rough or hairy. You remember Esau was the first seer man. Back in Genesis 25, 25 says he was Harry. Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. That's in Genesis 36, 8. It also was a land that was swept with storms. The silence and the storm. What a play upon words. And what a message. 
And here is another paradox. Edom, obviously, is the country involved. No question about that. Out of the land of silence and storm comes this inquiry which is twice repeated. Watchman, what of the night? In other words, how much of the night is gone? How long will it be before God's glory will be revealed when the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings? Well, the watchman said, the morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. You see, both morning and night are coming. And what will be glory for some will be doom for others. What will be light for God's people will be night for the Edomite, the man of the flesh that's rejected God. What a message. Now, verse 13, the burden upon Arabia. And now, in the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim. And this is verse 13. Now, Arabia seems clear enough, but again, this is a word with a double meaning. It can be made to mean evening by changing the vowel points. May I just add this, that Hebrew is a language without vowels, just consonants. And you have to put vowels in to the language. And that's what the Masoretic scholars did. And Hebrew would be bad enough for me to read with these markings of the vowels, but without it, I'd never be able to get through. Here, it's quite obvious. It was the evening in the history of Arabia. It was later than they thought. Now, Arabia was the land of the Ishmaelites, the Bedouin tribes of the desert. If you please, the modern Arab. Interesting, isn't it, that God speaks of them? And I'd love to spend time to say that here, another son of Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, they never did get along. They don't get along today either. I wonder if Abraham could look down now if he would think the sin he committed was a small sin. Friends, sin never ceases working itself out in the human story. Now we are told the inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water, and so on. And there was a coming judgment upon this land and people, and this chapter of poetic beauty and heart sorrow should not end on this note. It may be evening here, but God's day is reckoned the evening and the morning for the first day. Now it's evening, but the morning is coming. The night of weeping will soon be over, and a new day will dawn. Man's evening of failure and sin and darkness will finally come, and God's morning will be ushered in by the coming of the Son of Righteousness. Now, in chapter 22, we have the burden of the Valley of Vision, and this is Jerusalem. Now, this burden refers to Jerusalem, as we shall see here. And you have the burden of the Valley of Vision in Jerusalem, first 14 verses, then the brief from the case of Shebna and Eliakim. Now, what we have here... This valley of vision refers to Jerusalem. You say again, how do you know? Verse 4, 
Therefore said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly, labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. Now, that is, of course, Israel. Now, verse 8, "...and he discovered the covering of Judah, and thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David." There are many. And verse 10, "...and ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem." Now, this speaks of the fact that there's coming this judgment upon Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah actually took the precautions that are mentioned here in defending Jerusalem. You remember, he put a wall around the fountain so that they wouldn't run out of water. And you can still see that today in that land. Now, I want to drop down and just lift out for a moment the last judgment, which is the judgment that is mentioned here of Shebna and of Eliakim. Verse 15, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go, get thee unto the treasure, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say. And will you notice, Shebna was the secretary of the treasurer and a pretty cheap politician under Hezekiah. I won't turn to that, but we've already seen it in Second Kings 18, 18. And we'll see it again when we get to the 36th chapter of Isaiah. I'll hold it to then. But notice, what hast thou here? And whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out of sepulchre here, as he that heweth him out of sepulchre on high? And thou graveth an inhabitation for himself in a rock. Now, Shebna was building a tomb to perpetuate his name. And it was very ironical, because he was to die and be buried in a foreign land. Now, and I will drive thee from thy station, from thy state, shall he pull thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day, this is verse 20 now, and in that day, we're looking down to the end, that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I think that what we had under Shebna is just an adumbration, a picture of Antichrist. Here we have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. I will commit thy government into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. The Lord Jesus told the church in Philadelphia that he had the key of David. And he opened, and no man shut it, and he shut it, and no man opens. And that's the way we operate radio today. God has opened to us a great door and effectual. There are many adversaries, but he's opened the door. And he also said to the church in Philadelphia, you have a little strength, and that sure fits us. I felt like he's talking to us. We have a little strength, but he says, no man's going to be able to open it or close. I'm the one. And this speaks of the Lord Jesus, how wonderful it is. Now, I read the last verse here, verse 25. In that day saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in a sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord has spoken it. Now, this refers to Shebna, and he's a picture of Antichrist. 
and a great many people will trust Antichrist. They'll look to him. They'll actually think he's Christ. And he's just a nail when you hang something on it. Have you ever had that experience, driving a nail? Put a coat on it, a good heavy coat, and down it comes. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's a nail that's in a sure place. Shebna's not, and all others are not. And by the way, are you hanging everything you got today on a nail that's in a sure place? Now, a lot of people are not. They're hanging everything they've got on something that's not sure. Some people may even make investments. A man told me I trusted a lawyer. He made a mistake. He wasn't a nail in a sure place. And some people have trusted even a preacher and found out he wasn't a nail in a sure place. But friends, Christ is a nail in a sure place. I hope you'll hang everything on that nail. Hang your life there today. Now, friends, here in chapter 23, we come to the last burden. This is the eleventh, and it's the last burden. And the burden, as we've seen, is a judgment. And these have been against the nations that were round about Israel. And each one of these great nations represents or sets before us some great principle or a philosophy or a system which God must judge. And you can translate and transfer these, many of these, from those nations, and most of them long since disappeared, and put them right down where you and I live today, right down where the rubber meets the road. Then let me give a recapitulation of these 11 nations now and what they represent. And by the way, this one in chapter 23 is Tyre. And we'll talk about it in just a moment. But first, we had Babylon. Babylon represents false religions, idolatry. That today is covetousness. That is this overweening desire to have more and to give yourself to that, to the accumulation of the material things of this world. And then the second was Palestine. That represents true religion that has become apostate. And today, you find many churches, they go through a ritual. They'll even repeat the Apostles' Creed. They'll also repeat the Lord's Prayer. My, you'd think that they are resting right upon the Bible. And then you'll find out they're denying everything that's in it, now standing away from what they once believed. And now, the third nation here is Moab, and that represents a formal religion, that is, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And many of us today can be identified with one of these. Some of us are giving our lives to the accumulation of material things, and our eyes just filled with things that we want. We are covetous. And then there are others that actually have been probably brought up and maybe a Bible-believing church, but you've turned away from that today. And the others of you that belong to a system that you go through a lot of form and ceremony and a ritual, and it's beautiful, but that's all. It's as dead as a dodo bird. And then the fourth nation here was Damascus. That represents compromise. And that's the position that 
most churches are in today, by the way, a position of compromise. Many so-called fundamental churches are in that position of compromise, and thank God for those that are standing true. Then Ethiopia was the fifth nation, that there was a judgment. That represents missions, and thank God we need to get involved there. Then Egypt is the sixth one. That represents the world. We're told to love not the world, the things that are in the world. And Israel was told to stay out of Egypt. That's where Abraham got into trouble. And Israel's having a little trouble in that direction today. And many of us are having trouble with the world. And now we have the seventh judgment is against Persia. Well, that represents luxury. And my, how most of us love that today in this affluent society. The eighth one is Edom. That represents the flesh. And the lady that wrote in that was in her early days. That's the direction that she went. Many serve the flesh today. The ninth one is Arabia. That represents war. And today, there are two groups of people, those that are the hawks and the doves. And the only difference I can see between these two groups, because they're both of the world, the peace group, they're for peace, but they're willing to fight for it. And then you have the tenth one, that's the Valley of Vision. It was Jerusalem, and it actually represented, instead of religion, politics. And some think that that's going to be the solution to the problems of the world. Now we come to the eleventh tie here. That represents commercialism, big business. And I would say the great sin of America today, commercialism. There are people today that believe that the almighty dollar can solve the problem. And when any problem comes up today, Congress votes a little bit more money. And the people it's meant for never get it, of course, because every program for poverty has hurt the poor rather than helped the poor so far. Why? Because godless men just can't do it, my friend. There's only one. And the poor haven't learned it yet, because they are far from God. That only the Lord Jesus Christ has any love for the poor and really knows how to help them. Now we come here to Tyre, though, and let's look at it. Tyre and Sidon were the two great cities of the Phoenicians. Sidon actually was the mother city, and it was soon surpassed by her proud and rich daughter, Tyre. The ships of the Phoenicians, they entered all the ports of the Mediterranean Sea. They even penetrated the uncharted ocean beyond the pillars of Hercules, and the vessels of Phoenicia brought tin from Great Britain. In fact, the meaning of Britannia is the land of tin. And then the Phoenicians were aggressive and also a very progressive people. Carthage in North Africa was settled by them. Carthage, the great enemy of Rome, was a Phoenician city. And Cyprus owed its prosperity to trading with Tyre. And then there were other centers that they had founded. And you remember that Jonah went over to Tarshish. Well, where's Tarshish? On the southern coast of Spain. Who started it? Well, the Phoenicians did. And the Phoenicians are the one who invented the alphabet. 
Hiram King of Tyre was one of the great friends of King David. And when we get to Ezekiel 26, we're going to see one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Word of God concerning Tyre. And in that, we'll see that God made a prophecy that the city would be destroyed by Babylon, and they would go into Babylonian captivity 70 years, just as the southern kingdom went into captivity 70 years. And then these people returned as Israel did, and the city was rebuilt on an island out from the old city. And God had said that they're going to scrape the ruins of Tyre. Now, who in the world's going to do that? Well, Alexander the Great, when he came to power, came along. He's not about to fight Tyre with ships because they were expert in ships. So he built a causeway out there. I've walked down that causeway. And you know what it's filled with? I could have filled a tub, number two tub, with pieces of pottery that I saw along there. But you are not to get them. But I did put one piece in my pocket because it looked to me like they had plenty to spare. Where did all that pottery come from? Where did all those pillars come from? They came from the ruins of ancient Tyre, because Alexander the Great making the causeway scraped the surface of the old city. You couldn't even tell where it is today. It's all out there in the causeway. And Alexander took the city, literally fulfilled, just as God said it would be. And God said this in Ezekiel 26, 14, "'I'll make thee like the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more.'" For I, the Lord, have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Now, there's a little place, a little Turkish town right near there. But this place, Tyre, is still in ruins today. You want to disprove the Word of God, the atheistic friend? I call you a friend because you're a candidate for salvation. May I say this to you very candidly? Don't just stand on a street corner and blabber about you don't believe in God. Disprove his word. Go over there today and rebuild Tyre. Now, I'm very interested in telling you, though, that that's been tried before. In fact, there's a ready-made city called the Rockune City of Petra. God says that won't be inhabited. And that's already built down there. All you'd have to do is move in a colony. But don't do it. It's been tried. A German unbeliever took down a colony, and they stayed there a while, but they're not there today because God said it wouldn't be inhabited. Well, this is the city we're looking at. Now we have here in the first nine verses responsibility for the destruction of Tyre. Who's responsible? And here we find out it's divine, the Lord of hosts. Then there was a human responsibility for the destruction of Tyre. That was the Chaldeans. And then the interesting thing Tyre is to be recovered in the last days. It is going to be rebuilt. And if you could rebuild it, we'd be in the last days. That's one of the places to look to tell where we are on the clock of God. Verse 1, we have here the burden of Tyre, the judgment of Tyre. Howl, ye ships of Tarshish, for it's laid waste, so that there's no house, no entering in. From the land of Chittim it is revealed to them. And now, here come the ships from Tarshish. That's the place where Jonah fled. It was a colony of the Phoenicians. 
Now they're coming home from Tarshish. And as they get near, well, they get the word is brought to them. They see the smoke of the city. It's now destroyed. And these ships, the people on board, see a city that's now been leveled. The harbor is blocked. And no longer will it be a great commercial center. Verse 2, Be still, ye inhabitants of the isle, thou whom the merchants of Zidon, of Sidon, up the coast about 30 miles, that pass over the sea of replenish. Tyre was partially built on an island, and Tyre and Sidon go together, just like pork and beans go together. And it's interesting that the prophecy concerning Tyre, which was one thing's been fulfilled, that concerning Sidon is. It was to continue as a city. It's there today. That's where the oil is being brought and put on shipboard today. Now, verse 3, "...and by great waters the seed of Sihor, the harvest of the river, is a revenue, and she's a mart of nations." Now, Sihor means black, and it refers to the upper Nile, the silt of which flooded Egypt made it fertile. Now, the wealth of Egypt, you see, had flowed through the port of Tyre, and now that's ended. In other words, they're going to have a depression, and a real one. Verse 4, "...be thou ashamed, O Zidon, for the sea hath spoken, saying, I travail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I nourish up young men, nor bring a virgin." There's a suggestion here that Tyre is the daughter of Sidon. And historically, of course, this is accurate. And verse 5, "...as at the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre." Now, the destruction of Tyre ruins the commerce of Egypt in that day. And it says, "...pass ye over to Tarshish, how ye inhabitants of the isle." In other words, the fall of Tyre caused universal mourning, even to the colony that's way over on the southern coast. And many of these people fled in ships when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city. Some escaped there. Verse 7, "...is this your joyous city, whose antiquities of ancient days her own feet shall carry afar off to sojourn?" Any great commercial center is a city where it's a fun center, too, because they have those things there to cater to the flesh. Now the Tyrians are urged to flee as far as possible because the joyous city, it's come to an end. And verse 8 says, "...who hath taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are honorable of the earth." Now, the crowning city here really means the giver of crowns. You see, Tyre established these colonies. They were crown colonies. It doesn't mean Tyre was uh, electing a rose queen, a cotton queen, an orange queen. They were not giving out crowns like that. Verse 9, "...the Lord of hosts hath purposed to stain the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth." In other words, God says He was the one that determined the destruction of Tyre, and He offers no apologies for the arrangement He made. Therefore, he says, "...pass through thy land as a river, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength." And in other words, river, here's the Nile. And as the Nile overflowed her banks, the colony of Tarshish is now free to do as she pleases. Tyre can no longer control them. 
fire has fallen. No more strength. That means that there's no girdle that holds them up. Now in verse 11, he has here, "...he stretched out his hand over the sea, he shook the kingdoms. The Lord hath given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof." Have you noticed this threefold description of Tyre? In verse 7, it's called a joyous city. Verse 8, it's called a crowning city. And here in verse 11, it's called a merchant city. And all three were true of it. Verse 12, and he said, Thou shalt no more rejoice, O thou oppressed virgin daughter of Zion. Arise, pass over to Chittim. Thou also shalt thou have no rest. In other words, that both Tyre and Sidon would suffer the same things. And who's to destroy them? Well, God says he was responsible. He used an instrument. Verse 13, Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This people was not till the Assyrian founded it for them that dwell in the wilderness. In other words, when Assyria was a great nation, Chaldea, that is Babylon, was just a hick town. But now it's ruling the world. And therefore, verse 14, How ye ships of Tarshish, your strength is laid waste. How long will they be in captivity? Verse 15, It shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten seventy years. That's how long. Now I drop down here to verse 17. It shall come to pass after the end of seventy years that the Lord will visit Tyre. She shall turn to her hire. She'll become again a great commercial center and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. She'll become a harlot in the world. And that's the way God speaks of these great commercial centers. Verse 18, A merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the Lord. Now we move down the ages, and we come to the last days, and the time of the great tribulation, Tyre again will be a great city, and it will enter the millennium. Her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the Lord. In other words, now it's all dedicated to the Lord. What a picture we have here.